1: The primary threat was RKG-3 grenades, like machine guns and AK-47s, that kind of thing. Small arms fire, RPG fire. Explosively formed penetrators. Suicide bombs. And then that's about the time that the third IED went off. And that's when another grenade comes spinning over the side of the wall. And it's at that point the IED chain detonates. There was enemy in the wire. There was all these Humvees on fire. It, it was
0: truly bullets flying from every angle that, that you could see. I open the door and look outside, and all I see is muzzle flashes. There's a guy on top with a 240. And the rounds passed right past his head. At that point, our instincts kicked in. One, one pilot on the controls, the other pilot was using his M4 to engage single-man targets on the
1: ground. You're shooting at everything. It was a fight.
0: Welcome back to another episode of the Spear MWS podcast on the combat experience, and welcome to my guest, Lieutenant Colonel Dave Ritgers. Thanks for having me. Uh, I should actually say welcome back because you are uh, one of our uh, repeat guests. You were here; we featured your uh, one of your stories in an episode that we published a few months ago. Um, just you know, we by way of background for listeners who. Didn't hear that you are currently uh, a, a staff judge advocate. You're an army lawyer. You, in your sort of previous life, previous army life, though, were a special forces officer, and that's really from uh, the the period of your career that we're going to talk about today. Is that correct?
1: Right. Yeah. So I'm the special victim prosecutor here at West Point, but previously I was an infantry and then a special forces officer, and this is a story from uh, my time in third special forces group in Afghanistan in the spring of 2003. So there
0: were a couple things, you know, about your background that's interesting, besides the fact that you went from infantry to special forces to, uh, to the JAG Corps. But when you went to your special forces, was it the, was it uh, selection or the Q course that you started selection. on? So you started selection on September 11th, 2001. That's right. And, and, and obviously that sort of, um, ushered in a, a period of almost two decades now, it will be two decades of, of, of conflicts that really kind of then I guess, shaped your career, certainly the early part of your career. Last time we had you on, you shared a story from a deployment in 2003. I think it was your second deployment. Uh, And we're going to go back to that same deployment now, um, but sort of go backward in time. So just to sort of kind of reset the stage, uh, you got into country when on this deployment?
1: Uh, It was in the spring, like March or April.
0: Okay. And what part of, you were in Afghanistan. What part of Afghanistan were you in?
1: So we started out in the southern, sort of central southern area, uh, based out of Kandahar, and uh, and then right as soon as we got off the bird, we got the mission that we we're going to talk about. Where, you know, within the provinces around there, we had uh, a, a special reconnaissance mission uh, that was that was the purpose of our team. It was a special reconnaissance team. Teams are specialized. Some are reconnaissance. Some are direct action, which is you know kicking in doors and uh, you know actions. On the objective some uh, focus on infiltration like a scuba team and some do mountain operations or riverine operations so but we were a reconnaissance team and that's what we did
0: so what does that mean and what sort of training do your team members go under in order to do that mission
1: so this is when you're looking into movies and there's guys hiding under a bush or behind a rock and they have a big you know, binoculars or telephoto lens, and they're looking at the objective and they're on the radio to the headquarters saying, okay, go ahead. The, the, you know, the, the guy that we're trying to get is on the objective, bring the raid force team. Now that was our mission. Uh, and to train for that, we, you know, we did, um, we practiced the infiltration, uh, and we practiced carrying a lot of heavy weights, uh, in a rucksacks because, you're planning on being there for a stretch of time because you don't know that you're going to get there, and then the target, whoever you're looking for, is going to be there waiting for you. You anticipate getting there, and then potentially having to sit there for days until the, you know everything is ripe and everything is ready to go.
0: So, when you get done with uh, selection in the Q course, you ultimately uh, get out to a team. Uh, same for you know all the personnel on the on on an ODA. Do you have any, uh, you know, a sort of advanced warning? Hey, you are going to a team that's going to specialize in this particular discipline. Uh,
1: not in my case. No, I got there and they said you are going to go to this team, and it's a it's a reconnaissance team, and uh, and in the NCOs, they had done the training; they were familiar with it. They trained me as to you know as to how I needed to fit in, in terms of being a good uh, detachment commander to to get that part of the overall mission done.
0: And how long did it take from the time that you got to the team to the time that you felt sort of confident that I understand this? Obviously, selection and the Q course, all the training that you undergo prepares you to, you know, to the job of an ODA commander, but specifically sort of doing the job of leading a special reconnaissance team. How, mu- how much time does that take? Are we talking weeks, months?
1: I think after the first couple of months, we had done uh, some some training, some ranges together and worked on infiltration and worked with all of the, the camera equipment, the radio equipment, it, it took a few months to really get spun up to where the team was.
0: So the, you know, the wars in both Iraq and Afghanistan, um, were essentially characterized by a series of units that would rotate in, rotate out, they would be replaced by another one. So it was kind of a succession of, you know, pe- you know, the, 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 I guess maybe apocryphal quote. I don't know who who originally coined it, but that we didn't, we haven't fought a series or a twenty year war in Afghanistan. We fought a series of one year wars, meaning all of these units, conventional units that have cycled through, have essentially started and and ended their war, which is you know different from uh, certainly from examples like World War II from history, where you go and you stay until it's done. Um, at some point. You know, we I know we got into that with special forces teams, especially cycling back to the same location. Was that pattern sort of established yet by this point in two thousand
1: three? It it was not at all. And as we said in you know my other podcast, uh, we so my team had gone to a different area, down in the Kandahar area in two thousand three, than they had been in the year before uh, before I got there they were towards the border in the Paktika province. And then just by happenstance uh, after the mission we're going to talk about and after a bunch of other reconnaissance missions, we the team ended up getting moved from the Kandahar area over towards the border again, went to the same province they had been at, already had a network of contacts, already knew the people, already effective there. And we lobbied to stay there. And, they, and the, the, so the next year after this in 2004, I went back with the team and, you know, and we were assigned to go back to the same base where we had been at and definitely to the benefit of the team and to the mission and, and just to be more effective.
0: So when you got there, when you, you know, when you land in country, were you replacing another team or were you taking up a new mission that was just being stood up?
1: We were going to go replace a, another team, uh, north of Kandahar. But once we got on the ground, there was this mission that, uh, that, 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 simply couldn't get done before the end of the last special forces units rotation. And and our commander wanted to do this mission. And they said, Hey, we're not going to send you out to your fire base yet. You're going to go into isolation, which is how you do all of your planning in special forces. Uh, you, you know, you, you, you're cut off from the news. You're living in a tent away from everybody and you just plan the mission. That's all you do. And they said, Hey, this is your mission. This is the objective where we think uh, this, this guy, the, the target. Uh, is going to be at. Uh, and, uh, you know, where would you do the surveillance from? How would we get there? Where do we land a helicopter to drop you off? And we go straight into planning as soon as we got off the the, the plane into Afghanistan.
0: So was it, I mean, are you, are you, you know, is that hyperbole a little bit or was it literally the, the, you know, the day that you stepped off the plane?
1: If not the day, then it was the day after. It was right away.
0: And did you have any advance warning that that was going to be the case or was it, I mean, was it you know a surprise to you
1: yeah i don't remember getting any advance warning when we were on the way over we just got there and it and they said hey we have this mission the commander wants to put you guys in uh so start preparing and you know get your packing list ready and get ready to go okay and how long did you have to plan so i want to say we planned for a few days and then uh and then as as happens the planning process is actually really you're very busy all the time. And so uh, as we we're getting ready to go infiltrate on the the plan night, the weather was bad and we couldn't go. And so they just shut the birds down. We stayed at the airfield and we just went out to uh, back to the tent where we had done our isolation planning and got to sleep an extra day, which was for the best uh, because, you know, we got off with jet lag and then went straight into planning. And so the, the extra day was was definitely a benefit. Uh, but then the next night we went in and infiltrated you know, we'd been in the, the country like maybe a week or so, and we were already you know doing this reconnaissance mission.
0: Wow. so what can you tell me about the about the mission?
1: Uh, so yeah, so there's this uh, you know this uh, Taliban-affiliated uh, anti-coalition militia was the the terminology at the time uh, leader, and uh, he had actually executed a uh, a Red Cross worker. Um, it was it's the International Committee for the Red Cross, different than. What people think the Red Cross is, like they come when there's a hurricane. This is different. The International Committee for the Red Cross are basically the keepers of the Geneva Conventions and the law of armed conflict. And so these guys are actually battlefield referees, and they go around on the battlefield and they they you know inspect uh, American and allied detention facilities, make sure that we're treating people humanely. They actually go out and meet with the Taliban and say, "We want to talk to you guys about what you've been doing." Uh, and this particular guy was in the wrong place and ran into the wrong uh, Taliban-affiliated uh, uh, militant who executed him as an example to get rid of foreigners. And uh, and so it was a priority to you know to go find this guy. Uh, and so that was our mission. Was you know they had a town where they thought that he might be his his one of his safe houses or headquarters. And, and we were going to surveil that location. And there were several other teams that had been put together in, you know, in a, in a task force package to, to come in and get the guy. Once we had confirmed that he was there and that everything was all set to go, you know, at nighttime, they would come in and, and, uh, and get him.
0: And would, was the plan for you to be still there in place when the, when the operation to go get the guy took place?
1: That was the plan and you know, we packed for a number of days uh, and we were supposed to be sitting there waiting and, and as we get into uh, the story, you know we'll, we'll talk about we got we were compromised, it was a soft compromise. Uh, we ended up not doing it, but as I'll you know kind of get to the moral of the story, the work that we did was still important in having a successful mission. and it was just all part of what you have to do, kind of bigger picture to be successful in these kinds of operations.
0: Okay, so what does the actual infiltration look like? You fly how far in order not to be compromised or to to try to avoid being compromised? How far away from the target location do you have to get dropped off?
1: So the answer to that is it depends. It depends on the terrain. Uh, where we were, so our final observation spot was uh, about two kilometers uh, away from the objective, and it was on this ridge line. That was essentially like a Y turned sideways and we landed on uh, the far end of the Y and then we had to walk down a hill and then up a hill to get to the other end of the, the Y, you know, the, the Y being the raised part of the terrain. And from that position, we could we had a good vantage point uh, to, to see the objective and to take photos, send photos back to higher and report on what was going on on the objective.
0: And that's all something that was determined during during your planning phase. When you go into isolation, you look at maps, you look at uh, you know whatever you have available to you, and you say, okay, this is the place where we think we have the best vantage point, and here's how we're going to get there.
1: That's right, and we, you know we 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 pick that based on where we think we can best see the objective, and you know and where we would in, insert to be far enough away not to be uh, discovered on the way in. Okay,
0: and so you get in place in, at, at night, presumably.
1: That's right. Yeah. The helicopter drops us off at night. Um, you know, so we really, uh, you know, we, we were not far enough off uh, as it turns out to really avoid uh, the kind of the compromise of where the helicopter was going to insert uh, from the, from the north end of the sort of the sideways Y uh, going down and then coming up. I mean, we ended up only traveling about, it was 400 meters straight line distance on a map but it the the hill was just savage terrain it was basically not a hill but more like a pile of boulders they're just big steps like these big like 12 18 inch steps so it was like going down a stopped escalator made of rock and then up another long escalator that was stopped that was made of rock like a giant stairway to heaven and because we had planned on being there a long time We were carrying a lot of, uh, you know, a lot of equipment. We had hundred-pound rucksacks, and then in addition to that, every guy was carrying either a box of MREs or a uh, five-gallon water can. And so, when you talk about this versus normal semi-passable terrain, normal movement at night in a patrol walking on, you know, kind of lightly rolling hills in the woods, you can plan on maybe like a kilometer an hour. Uh, In this instance, it took us four hours to move 400 meters. Wow. So it was, yeah, really taxing. Um, but at the end of the day, we got to where we, we needed to be. Uh, we, we set up on by first light. Uh, we couldn't dig into the hill because, once again, it was all boulders. There was just no dirt. It was just miserable. Uh, but we were up on this rock ledge on the military crest of the hill, by which I mean, you know, below silhouetting ourselves, you know, against the hill. But there was a little ledge, and we had some rocks in front of us, and we had a good concealed position uh, where we could set up. Uh, and then really the only thing that we were worried about was, you know, we were down one of the fingers of the Y and then at the peak where the two fingers came together at the Y, there was this raised rock ledge that sat up above us. And that was the one spot where if someone had walked up there, they would look down and we'd be, you know, seen plain as day. Uh, but so we were set in and we were, we were ready to go and we, you know, we had eyes on the objective and everything was going essentially as planned at that point. So. You
0: say you had eyes on the objective, but, you know, most people when they think two kilometers, you're not seeing much, obviously, with the naked eye. So you've clearly got equipment that 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 helps you. I mean, two kilometers, is that pushing the distance uh, from from a target uh, that you can be and still have a have feel like you have a reasonable degree of situational awareness of what's going on in that village?
1: So we were at the outer edge of, of the, you know, the equipment. And of course this is in 2003, so you can assume that it's all better at this point, but yes, we were able to, to, to take photos and look through the, the equipment that we had and, and have some awareness of what was going on and see all of the structures, you know, and, and people going back and forth. Uh, so, um, yeah, that was, but it was at the, the kind of the limit of what we could do at that point, given the terrain and the visibility and everything.
0: And did you have an expectation of, so you come in period of darkness, you know, before dawn, you get, you get settled in. Did you have any expectation on which night was it going to be that night? Was it going to be two, three nights later that they were hoping to actually, you know, prosecute the target?
1: So we, we didn't know at that point. Uh, but we had planned, like I said, for an extended stay on the side of the mountain.
0: And how many, was it your entire team?
1: Yes. We, we were not a full team at that point. Uh, we only had, Uh, I want to say eight guys at that point, but, uh, but yes, we had all of our, our eight guys up there. So
0: presumably you sort of settle into kind of a battle rhythm there where you've got some people trying to get some rest, some people, uh, keeping their eyes on the target. What does that kind of look like?
1: Uh, so part of the leader tasks of that was making sure that the you know that that the observation of the target with the cameras the the photo lenses and everything that we had that that was set up and that our communications were good and and I was focused on just making sure that we were getting the data and the feedback from the objective and pushing it to higher and then as you said there's a certain amount of a rest plan where you know a couple other guys are pulling security in different directions and the other guys are resting while the, you know, their buddy is pulling security. And so getting that dynamic set up was that really the first thing that, that I had to worry about once we got set and in position.
0: I would imagine that to some degree um, it's, it can be difficult to sort of say stay switched on um, in that sort of when you, when you know you could be there for, you know, days on end, you know, just observing a village that you know that there's potentially or likely to be a particular individual there, a target in there, but, you know, it's just going through its kind of daily routine. Is it, is it a challenge to kind of, to stay focused?
1: So yes, it is a challenge to stay focused. I will say that that uh, our compromise happened relatively quickly. In It happened on the first day. So we didn't get to the point where fatigue had really set in. Um, but yes, that's definitely a factor if you're there for more of an extended period.
0: So you've mentioned compromises and soft compromises, and I'm curious a little bit, and maybe you can touch on this in, in your answer to the question I'm about to ask, but I'm curious where kind of the line that distinguishes one from the other is, Um, I also, you know, I'm certain that you have probably a pretty insightful understanding of some of the legal questions of kind of what you can do when you face a situation like this, a scenario in which you are compromised. Uh, I think listeners will have an intuitive understanding, you know, that, that the law of armed conflict and rules of engagement, uh, sort of come into play and as well as, you know, military norms and ethics. Um, but before we kind of get to the, the, that legal question, you know, on a more sort of practical level, what are your options when you get compromised and and what are the sort of factors that uh, that that you have to weigh when when determining you know what to do
1: so you know in terms of the practicality, I think the bottom line up front is that people have to understand that um that you know even if you have that compromise like in the the you know the book and the movie Lone Survivor you know Marcus Luttrell and his SEAL team it was some goat herders right uh it was kind of the same thing in our instance the bottom line is is that is that you know capturing that guy or killing him or whatever you think you're going to do is buying you less time than you think uh you know if it's like if you're in, you know, World War II and you're the OSS and you're watching, you know, the Germans and you're, you know, and there's a sentry that goes by, if you capture them or kill them or whatever, that sentry is on some patrol route and they're tied to somebody who's going to expect them to come back at some point or report in. So you've only bought yourself a little bit of time. And in practical terms, when it's you know a, a civilian who's walking around with you know goats or sheep or whatever in the hills, the same is true. You know, uh, they they know the people who, who they live with know that they went to go walk the animals and there's only so many ways you can walk the animals in a day. So they went in some cardinal direction, probably walked a certain hill and they're expected back almost certainly by dark. And so you've only, you know, if you capture them, uh, or kill them or whatever, you're only buying yourself until the time that they're expected back and the people, who know them are going to come looking for them, so I think that's sort of the, the the takeaway is you should temper expectations with this doesn't make the mission happen. Probably it buys you a little bit of time, so that's kind of the practical effect that is worth noting. So, so essentially,
0: you know, if you are compromised, your choices either leave or you know capture the guy. And still leave. I mean, once you're compromised, there's there's no real way to, to just continue on with the mission as planned.
1: Right. And the, I guess the one exception to that would be if you've spotted the the guy that you're looking for or whatever. The conditions are right for the, the assault force to come in and you get compromised sort of on the cusp of that happening. And then if you're holding the shepherd there for a couple hours while the helicopters are on their way in or, or whatever the, you know, the parallel circumstance is, that's basically the one instance where it makes sense to, to hold the guy there and, and expect for the mission to continue basically as if the guy hadn't come in there and, and compromise you. So
0: Okay. But this was uh, evidently not one of those cases.
1: No. And, and to kind of, you know, finish sort of the spectrum of possibilities in terms of legality. Uh, so, you know, let's just say, you know, getting compromised, it could be a hard compromise where it's the enemy, the enemy troopers, whatever soldiers, and they spot you and they're shooting at you versus that's hard compromise versus soft compromise, which is like a civilian goat herder uh, finding you up there. Um, so in In the spectrum of those people if you see someone walking around who hasn't seen you yet uh you know could you go you know kill them well if they're a combatant then legally the answer is yes like if it's you know a soldier in a regular army yes if it's a combatant who's in what's been legally determined to be a designated hostile force yes now those forces are rare in the last 20 years they are kind of the exception but ISIS and you know, and some other groups, the the Mahdi militia in, in Iraq for certain periods were wearing uniforms, they were combatants, they were, you know, they were distinguishable from the population. In those instances, then probably yes, you could do that. Um, with someone who's not wearing a uniform, you know, and hasn't discovered you yet, could you kill them? It's 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 pretty small set of circumstances where that would happen in Afghanistan. Uh, if the guy was walking around with a radio, and uh, because the, the, so the radio frequencies in Afghanistan didn't change, the mm. the Taliban were using the same ones as the Mujahideen. So, you know, same frequency. So if we had a push-to-talk unsecured radio, we could listen to the Taliban net. And so if we saw some guy walking around looking for us, you know, and he's on there saying uh, "aberto which is like "breaker breaker" uh, on the Taliban net. Then maybe you could, you know, if you could kill that guy silently because he was obviously a Taliban lookout. Maybe your ROE provides for that. Your rules of engagement. Very, very rare. But so, but let's so let's say it's not you know someone who hasn't seen you and you're deciding to do something to him, but someone that you capture, like the goat herder, or even an enemy soldier. Once you've captured them, you can't kill them. Uh, So the laws of war just they are you know they facilitate, they allow the use of force, lethal force in certain circumstances, but even if they're a regular combatant and you've captured them, they're considered or to combat, which is French for out of the fight, essentially. And then if they're a civilian, some goat herder who stumbled into your special reconnaissance mission, they're a civilian that you've captured, you can't kill them. So your option is either to hold them there uh, or not. Um, so that's kind of, that's sort of the, the spectrum of both the practical and the, the legal considerations. So if you,
0: so specifically, if you choose to capture this person, what are your options then, um, take them out with you, uh, capture them. I mean, you know, we saw how Lone Survivor, how the movie and the book sort of treated this scenario, but how many options do you have? If, if you've been sort of soft compromised you don't know whether or not this person has reported it anywhere, you're able to detain him. What do you do?
1: Yeah, sure. You could walk them out with you to where the helicopter is going to pick you up or whatever else your, your exfiltration route is you could let him go, maybe you could tie them to a tree. I guess I understand that in the last few years there's been uh, the advent of some time release uh, flex cuffs where mm. you could just you know, set an alarm basically to let them go in a few hours, which would give you time to you know, make space and distance between them and to exfiltrate successfully. But yeah, you take them with them, you take them with you or you let them go. Um, but by and large, as I said, someone's going to come looking for that guy. Your mission's probably over unless you're at the very tail end of the assault force coming in. So your
0: team then during this mission did experience a soft compromise. Uh, What happened?
1: So as we were sitting on the one fork of the hill, we did have eyes on the other fork of the hill or the, the, the ridgeline. And that was where the helicopter had landed. And a, Uh, Shepard comes along, he's he's walking his sheep up the hill, and then he stops uh, and he makes one of his daily prayers to Mecca right on top of where our helicopter landed. And while that may have been a coincidence, it seemed to us like that was pretty good trade craft. That that was an excuse for him to inspect the condition of the ground and see that it had been disturbed by either helicopter blades or maybe something had fallen off the helicopter and there was litter there that you know betrayed our presence. That you know it dropped off Americans. Uh, so he then walked uh, up the ridge and disappeared for a period of time, and then. About an hour hour and a half later, he actually appeared at the outcropping of rock at the peak of the intersection of the two uh, spurs on on the ridge and he popped up right where we had assessed someone could see us. And so he knew the ground, he knew where to get to. He popped up on there and then as soon as he did, he was walking with a uh, you know a big staff and so he gets up to the top and he raises his Moses pole. And he makes essentially a Wookiee sound and goes Whoa! across the <laughs> valley and, and we're busted. We're compromised. So, uh, so we've been compromised. He was, yeah, I, I mean, minimum 40 meters from us. Uh, you know, we called it into our headquarters. They said, Hey, can you capture this guy? And the answer was no, we couldn't climb over the boulders and up the, you know, the piece of cliff to get to him. So, uh, so we, you know, we were compromised, and uh, you know, our mission for that day we uh, wasn't wasn't going to come to fruition. Um, and we had separately gotten, you know, hire had told us, "Oh, hey, this the guy that we're looking for, the target. Uh, we think he's somewhere else right now, anyway." So settle in for the long haul, and then after that, we get compromised, and the long haul is just not a possibility now that we've been busted.
0: So at that point, then kind of you said. You're not able to go after him and try to detain him. What what are your options? Is it just get out of there? And if so, you know what's the process by which you start to do that?
1: So that's that is what we did. We called into our headquarters. We said, you know, we've been compromised. We can't get a hold of the guy. He's up on this ledge. Uh, so we began the process of moving back to our helicopter LZ. The things that we did consider was, you know, what if the the guys down in the village. Come rushing up and attack us. We were not worried about that because the nature of the terrain was such that you know we could have held off at least a company worth of of guys with small arms because of the severity of the hill and the excellent cover of the rocks that we had. We really just had to worry about that ledge to get up around that backside of that ledge where he popped up, um, and you know, short of them having mortars or indirect fire we really weren't worried about that. So we, yeah, we, so we, we ended up dumping the extra water that we had brought for days of being up there and we moved back to the, to the helicopter landing zone and we just got picked up and, and flew out. Uh, and so I think the takeaway though, was it, is it at the end of the day, all was not lost. The pictures that we took ended up informing the, the assault force because things, you know, when they look at the aerial photographs, they say, this looks like this is solid. This is a wall. And this, this is just like a a waist high fence. That's, you know, not going to obscure visibility or anything. And then once we gave the photos to those guys and they looked at that stuff, it actually informed what the terrain looked like better. And so the assault plan changed. And then at the end of the day, another team, not us, we went out to our fire base, but another team did another SR mission, went in, they changed up what they did for the infiltration and they, uh, were there when the target showed up and, uh, you know, they ended up assaulting the target and they, you know, they, they, they got the guy and all of his, uh, you know, his, uh, uh, his followers and they, you know, they rolled those guys up and it was a successful mission in part because, you know, we gave them something to help form the assault plan. Uh, So, you know, another lesson is, is that, is that in the movies, it's always like a half dozen guys with beards and guns and they fix everything. But you have to understand that you're also part of a bigger plan and a, you know, a bigger organization. And so some of the stuff that you do doesn't pay off immediately, but at the end of the day, it helps the overall unit get to success.
0: Did you feel that way, you know, when you get on the helicopter and when you get back right away, or are you experiencing some degree of frustration?
1: Oh, we were certainly frustrated, but it, there was no changing the circumstances, uh, you know, but we did the best we could and, um, you know, and then and then that information you know, did help, uh, to a, to an ultimate success. And that was, it was a good feeling to hear that the, that the, you know, the team that ended up going in to follow on, learn from what we did and change where they came in and, you know, did things a little bit differently and, uh, and, and that ultimately the mission was a success. So when you went out to
0: the, your, your, uh, I guess you went out to your fireplace pres- right after that, were you still, planning or were you still sort of tasked with doing primarily special reconnaissance missions or doing a whole range of things?
1: Uh, We ended up doing a whole range of things. We still, we did some, some mounted reconnaissance missions, uh, which were really more like sort of area assessment missions, driving into areas where Americans just hadn't gone before and assessing kind of where things were and giving the commander eyes on the province so that, you know, he would know what were problem areas, uh, you know where would we think about you know uh, partnerships with with locals uh, and just sort of shaping what the the commander's overall picture and then follow-on deployment of forces was going to be
0: so you talked a lot about um, you know kind of what your options are legally what your options are uh, when when you're on a mission like this and there is a soft compromise you're 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 a lawyer now. Um, so clearly this is something that, you know, you should know well, and you know, well, how much of that, you know, were you aware of at the time, or are you sort of kind of reliant on, you know, just making smart, responsible, ethical decisions, knowing, Hey, this guy isn't carrying a weapon, not carrying a radio. We don't, we can't, our rules of engagement do not allow us to engage
1: him. Yeah, it was very much the latter. I mean, I, you know, I didn't have legal training like I do now, but we had rules of engagement, Uh, and you know, you mentioned the moral component. I mean, if we had shot the guy, there was really nothing to be gained. I mean, the compromise was done. And so there really wasn't anything to do, but what we did. Uh, so, you know, that's, that's just kind of how the cookie crumbles. Sometimes, sometimes some missions aren't going to be successful like that. Um, but I think that if you have your rules of engagement are right, and you're acting in good faith. I think you normally just get to the same result that you would have, uh, you know, otherwise, even if you didn't have a bunch of legal training.
0: This is your first mission you set on this deployment. This is your second deployment. Um, and you've got a team, not a, not a full complement of, of soldiers on your ODA, but you got a number of soldiers. This is 2003, you know, there were still people, you know, obviously deploying for the first time. Was this a uh, a good sort of learning experience to to be able to, you know, almost stress test your processes and things so quickly and unexpectedly right when you get in country?
1: Absolutely. And and I think the takeaway for me was that the training that we had had both in the special forces qualification course and the training that we did at our home station once we were on our teams was pretty well tuned to what we needed to do once we got in theater. You know, I remember carrying a hundred pound rucksack on my infiltration into Robin Sage, which is the last phase of the special forces qualification course. And, you know, carrying that level of weight. And I, you know, we did do reconnaissance missions. We practiced with the equipment, with the radios, with concealing our position. We practiced all of that. And so, with the exception of having that really, really unforgiving terrain handy in the United States, uh, which it's, it's tough to find something to replicate exactly how, uh, you know, how savage that terrain was. But, but short of that, all of the components, all of the leader and all of the soldier tasks, we had practiced, we had tried to uh, get to readiness on and then it ended up being, you know, what we needed to do the mission.
0: Well, Dave, I really appreciate you coming on for a second time. Uh, we've, we've spoken a few times and, and we could probably do kind of a mini series just of your stories. Cause you've got a handful of ones that would be uh, that I think listeners would really appreciate. So hopefully this one is one that interests them. It is, I mean, it is something we haven't had. We haven't had a story in the, you know, many dozens uh, of episodes that, that we've recorded uh, that has involved a compromise like this. And, and it, you know, it's a high pressure situation, uh, that most people won't have had the legal training that you now have, just like you hadn't at that point. Um, but it forces, uh, I think, or it can force some um, some rapid sort of leadership decisions that need to be made. Uh, so I appreciate you sharing it.
1: Yeah, thank you for having me. I really appreciate it. Thank you for listening to this episode
0: of The Spear.